and then Merit can decide who are the winners and losers. Uh, so that's generally where you start. And then in terms of, well, what are the solutions to these problems? Well, that's, that's the, the devil's in the details there. And, uh, you know, the first step is to be keen historically. You know, we tend to always think that we have to invent something new, or we tend to always think that our problems are unique and they've never come up before. But the reality is that history gives a huge amount of analogies to draw from and ideas to draw from. You know, everything we have, every political system we had, was probably a result of a war or a debate. And there was a losing side, and in the, the winning side isn't always the right one. They were the ones that just won. So history itself provides a tremendous lens to look at modern problems from. Uh, then moving beyond that, then you have to look from first principles. And then you say things like, well, does this violate any laws of physics? Does this violate any science? Is this violating any common notions that we've developed through years of hard effort about how the world works or how people interact with each other? So basic principles that, you know, entropy tends to increase over time. So social systems are not immune to that. Whatever you create, it's going to be in its best state the minute you've created it. And then over time, the system tends to decay a little bit. It tends to get a little corrupt over time. Second, people can't be trusted. Uh, no matter how good or moral or great people are in your, uh, in your ecosystem, even if those people stay that way, their children won't or their successors won't. And so a system will gradually get um, returned to a steady state of more Byzantine behavior. So you look at you know, common notions and you look at uh, well-understood truths and a litany of these types of things. And then finally, you just be receptive to what people are broadcasting. So YouTube is a great resource. TED is a great resource. Uh, there's tons of conferences all around where people are actively broadcasting the things they're trying to do and where they're succeeding, where they're failing. And it's their job to tell you. So all you have to do is listen. So you can learn so much from listening. Uh, so, you know, if you break down these global markets, you can pick a subsection. You can look at remittances or microfinance or these types of things. And you say, well, why are these things so expensive? And you have to have multi-order thinking. So you have to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And so it's not just, well, because they don't have bank accounts. Well, you say, well, why don't they have bank accounts? Well, uh, you know, banks just have chosen not to deploy there. Why not? Well, because they just can't make enough money. Well, why can't they make enough money? Well, it turns out the identity infrastructure is bad or the local legal structure is very counterproductive and so forth. So when you actually start walking your way through that, then you start understanding that these problems you want to solve are incredibly nuanced. And you don't try to solve the whole thing. What you do is you just pick a subset and say, okay, this is the one that I'm most comfortable with. And if you're really a master at all of this, then what you can find is the connection points between what you're solving and everything else. For example, if you look at Amazon as an analogy. So you know, Jeff Bezos wakes up and says, I want to build this gigantic global marketplace that sells everything to everyone, everywhere, anytime. Well, how do you start? We started with one particular vertical and one particular idea of a marketplace. And that was books. And then he gradually scaled out. And they had to build this gigantic web infrastructure. Oh, and lo and behold, now we have Amazon Web Services. So he can resell the web infrastructure that he's constructed and so forth. And oh, well, you know, we have to understand what people want. Well, so he became an AI company. And he built Alexa and all these other things after the AI acquisition. And then he said, well, we're now a logistics company. Because if we're selling to everybody, we have to move things to people. So he's building drones. And he's building his own delivery services and so forth. And he says, well, if I'm selling everything to everybody, there's going to be gaps in the marketplace. So he's creating his own product lines and so forth. So, you know, this is an example of that. 
interconnected thinking where you start with a very specific problem for this grand vision. And then if you pick that problem correctly, very naturally it allows you to solve the next problem and the next problem. And then you have this beautiful business uh, vision. So that's how I tend to think. I start from a historical lens and say, well, what's come before? Then I take a look at reality as it is, not as I want it to be. And I apply some really deep critical thinking. And then I say, okay, what subset problem are people working on that I feel I could build a coalition around and we can get a lot of progress with? And is that problem sufficiently juicy that it can connect to other problems and scale through? And the final point is economic viability. You can never solve anything with charity. Charity is a short-term thing. It's like uh, being hungry and somebody shows up and gives you a hamburger. They're a saint for a day. But then what about tomorrow and the day after and the day after? You need some sustainability there. So similarly, any solution you're looking for, you have to always ask yourself, what keeps this solution viable under different scenarios, especially economic attacks, uh, over a long period of time? So why would people still be using this in five years or 10 years or 15 years? And when you start thinking about that, what you find out is that's usually at odds with things like ethics and viability and quality. Uh, for example, uh, everybody can make a better hamburger than McDonald's. Uh, it's just a general truth. And McDonald's hamburgers aren't very tasty. But uh, can you build a better business system than McDonald's to deliver those hamburgers across the entire world? So just because you can create quality or some characteristics that's superior to the incumbent in the market, in no way indicates that that's going to be successful or scale or actually be around for a long period of time. So you have to balance that out. You have to ask yourself what sticks around, what survives, and why do people care? I, uh, I'm always amazed that if you add up all the view counts of every video I've ever done on YouTube and other sources, maybe it's a million, two million views. A single cat video on YouTube has an order of magnitude, the two orders of magnitude more views than the totality of my life's work uh, amongst everybody. So it's, you know, it's always important to have perspective about you know, when people are listening, why they're listening, and consumption habits, and the sustainability of certain things. Right. That makes sense. And like, thank you for that, like, wonderfully expansive answer. I guess like a lot of startups who like read Hakanoon would be interested to know like how you, how you have thought of problems and how you come up with solutions. You find a problem through a historical lens, make sure that like what you are trying to build is collaborative, makes economic sense, and then think of scaling up after you have built the first step. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. Uh, now we'll move on to the actual questions on Cardano and like what you guys think about it. So I understand like Cardano that it is a blockchain, it is a layered solution, but how do I explain that to my mom? Like she, I, I can explain Ethereum smart contracts to her cause they are like pretty simplistic, like even in like your words, these are generation two blockchains, right? How does Cardano like build on top of that or maybe like remove that junk and how does it like come up with something that is like scientific you guys say that it is provably secure provably safe the most secure like consensus mechanism it is it will be functional smart contracts how like how do you like break it down for someone who does not understand these words i think that's the i think you have to take a step back and ask yourself well, what are we trying to accomplish with these things if you try to approach them from a technology Point. That's like explaining the iPhone based on the components inside of it. It's like, oh, here's the A9 processor, and you know, here's this ASIC, and here's this chip, and this chip. It's like, what's the point? It's a smartphone. Well, what is that? What problems does it solve? So you have to start with that. 
So the point of all these cryptocurrencies and blockchains is ultimately what they're about is the management of assets, information, trust, and data. So we live in a world where information wants to be free, where assets want to be free, markets want to be liquid. We live in a world where we have notions of identity everywhere. You log into places with your passwords. You have the domain name service. So when you go to a website, google.com, there's some way of figuring out, well, is that really Google or not? You have to sign documents. Uh, we live in an age where you sell stuff. You have markets. We live in an age where you own all kinds of weird assets. You say, oh yeah, the money that you're sending is there. It's real. It exists. And to settle that transaction, that could take days. And then suddenly that third party who does those things becomes the gatekeeper. And if you don't, if you don't, if you can't work with that third party, you're shut out of the marketplace completely. So what's happened in the 21st century is a tends to lead to these 2008 uh, it, all these companies being 13 years what they do we probably do things differently so Bitcoin was really the first attempt and really all that was was just saying is it possible to create you know, some sort of decentralized store value that we can push around the internet that doesn't require banks it doesn't require PayPal and People who never met each other, don't trust each other, can reach some sort of consensus about truth. And even if people are dishonest, the system is sustainable. That was kind of the first attempt. Now, this was a wildly radical idea because up until then, anybody who created their own money usually got thrown in jail within the first five to 10 years. And uh, you know, all these private currencies would always end up the same way. Some dishonest actor would show up, create a fractional reserve currency to collapse. People forget in the 19th century, America had hundreds of private monies. All of them failed. So then. Uh, after the first generation, people said, wow, this stuff is here to stay. We can decentralize trust. We can create a common source of truth amongst people. We can push money around. Problem with Bitcoin is it's blind, deaf, and dumb. You know, it doesn't understand the world around it. Uh, you can't do smart transactions. All you can do is just kind of push value to people. Uh, and, uh, you know, you are unable to integrate this easily into anything of usefulness in terms of market economy. So, for example, if you see a lot of the attempts to make Bitcoin more useful, like MasterCoin and ColorCoins, historically, they took months to do basic things, like have a person issue their own token. And then when they were issuing their own token, it still was a very kludgy experience, and it just didn't work very well for people. So then with Ethereum, we said, okay, well, now the time has come to make these systems more useful. So we created smart contracts. And that was all about saying, all right, now you can kind of put your terms and conditions, your logic, the why behind what you're doing. and the settlement terms and so forth into the transactions that are occurring. And then you can start building financial products. You can issue your own money. You can build decentralized exchanges. You can do all these things and that's fun. But the problem with Ethereum is it kind of has three dimensions. One, it doesn't scale, not with its current design. So you need to fundamentally change the way the protocols work so that as you gain users, you stay at the same performance and quality or you gain more resources, kind of like what BitTorrent has done. Second, Ethereum is not terribly interoperable with the legacy financial world. It doesn't understand regulation and you have to program a lot of that in. It's very expensive to use. If you want privacy, for example, it costs tons of money to do a private transaction like Nightfall. There's a litany of problems in the interoperability side of things. Imagine Wi-Fi where you know, every time you went to a different country, it was a different Wi-Fi standard and your phone only works with your home country. It would be a nightmare, right? And then finally, you have this issue of governance. 
the who pays and who decides component. Our space is not doing so well. That's why we have thousands of cryptocurrencies and we have the Bitcoin caches and the Ethereum classics and so forth. And so it's not clear how do you pay for these systems to sustain themselves. And it's not clear how do you decide to move ahead. So we've proven that we can have a decentralized store value. We've proven that we can broker trust amongst people. We've proven that we can make really smart transactions and we can automate a lot of things that used to be manual processes, but we haven't proven we can do these things at scale. We haven't proven that these things are gonna work with the rest of the world's systems, the old systems, and we haven't proven that these things are sustainable because they just don't have an economic model for paying for their development and also for people to get along a governance system. So the point of the Cardano project was to take a step back and say, let's just bring a bunch of great scientists together. Let's throw the past away and in the respect of let's not have a Bitcoin mindset or an Ethereum mindset. Let's just start from the science. And let's ask ourselves basic questions like, what is a blockchain? Like mathematically and scientifically, very precise definition of that. Or what is a consensus protocol? So if you have all these actors getting together and they don't trust each other, how do they arrive at a single source of truth? You know, how do we make that fair? What, what is that? What are the trade-offs there? In terms of these contracts where we create commercial understanding amongst each other, what is a smart contract? What would run in this decentralized system and what runs outside of the system but needs to be brought in to the system and so forth. And then, you know, fundamental things like what are we operating on? So what are these assets? When I say assets, what is that? Is that property? Is that a security? Is that a commodity? And if we're going to operate on many assets, how do you somehow create a stem cell? Like basically a fundamental thing that can turn into everything and satisfy all the needs of the legacy system. So we spent, when you said things like, well, you guys say it's provably secure, this is actually a precise cryptographic definition. And that means you have a model, you have an adversary and mathematical proofs to show that the adversary cannot do something within that model. So you're secure against this threat model. And then these things are peer reviewed. So I actually went to academic conferences like CCS and Crypto and Eurocrypt. And a lot of these conferences accept only 10 to 20% of the papers submitted to them by domain experts. So not crypto, cryptocurrency people, but scientists, so computer scientists, cryptographers, people at universities like Harvard and Cornell, big schools, all across the whole world. So we did that for the first few years, and we just got our first principles done. And then we said, okay, how do we actually build a great product from what we've learned? Because we kind of know what the foundations are, what we know our design space, we know what we're allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do, and so forth. And we did this in a way that didn't have any loyalty to the past. So we were in a position where we could rethink everything. We'd throw away the blockchain if we had to. Uh, we were completely agnostic and open. So in 2017, we started the first release of the product, and that was Byron. And that was all about just introducing Cardano to the world because we'd been running in silent mode for over two years, and nobody even knew about us. So then we said, hey, guys, we're around. And it just took the entire blockchain space by storm, and uh, we had a lot of fun with, uh, with that. And now we're entering the Shelley era. We just launched the first major milestone in that. And that's about saying, go from a federated network, kind of like how Ripple runs, to a completely decentralized network that if we've done our job correctly, we'll get more and more decentralized over time, but still keep a good performance envelope and continue to be extremely resilient. So it's gonna become the most decentralized cryptocurrency. Then after that's settled down, let's add programmability into it, so smart contracts into it. And then let's add the scalability functionality into it. And then finally, let's go ahead and add the interoperability and governance components into it. And that total package would then give us what we need to have billions of users 
talk to the legacy world and satisfy people like the FATF and governments, but at the same time keep our principles. And then finally, it'll allow us to, uh, to be able to decide where to take the system decade after decade. So people know that it's a sustainable system and it's gonna be around. Um, now, what's the point of all of this? Well, if we succeed in building all this infrastructure, we've rebuilt a new social operating system for the world, which means you can run your markets on it, your stock markets. It means you can run your voting system on it, your property ledgers on it. It means you can run your identity systems on it. You can decentralize the web and create a new DNS system. You can run your payment systems on it. Uh, you know, you can run credit systems on it. You can run banks on it. You can do anything in the financial world or non-financial world when it involves the brokering of assets, identity, data, or trust between people who have never met each other or don't trust each other. That's the point of what we're doing. And um, we feel that if we get it right, we'll be living with this system for a very long time decades, just like we're living with the existing system that we've inherited post-World War II. So we have a moral obligation to broaden the tent, to build it in a scientific way, and to use many universities, to use very high assurance engineering techniques so that you don't get hacked or lose your money. Uh, and we also have a way to build it in a very decentralized way. My company's in over 20 countries. So we have 230 people. We operate all around the world from Argentina to Japan. So the sun never sets on IOHK. And uh, we speak a lot of languages here. And uh, so that's, uh, that's a basically the best elevator pitch I can give you with five minutes. Well, this is nice. And like, I guess like this careful approach runs contrary to what the other cryptocurrency projects have been doing. They like announce first and then they like start building and like you guys have been doing it completely in reverse, which is a refreshing change. We all enjoy that. And like, that is, I guess, the reason why Cardano is never like, called out in any of the uh, cryptocurrency debates. Like it is taken as like one of these only, I guess, like one of the only like cryptocurrency or the blockchain out there that be, that all of us believe to be like secure and believe what they have to say. Makes yeah. sense. And uh, security always lives in an environment and an adversary and there's no such thing as perfectly secure. Uh, you know, is right. all you really do is just use the best techniques that people have come up with to try to build a mostly secure system. But at the end of the day, we're still like any other cryptocurrency in that if a user gives their keywords to someone else or they send their, their currency to someone else uh, like a, because the scammer impersonates someone, uh, you know, it's the same with Bitcoin as it is us. It's more of a question of can the DAO hacks happen and can the parity hacks happen and these types of things that have plagued our ecosystem and cost collectively hundreds of billions to billions of dollars. And our hope is to grow beyond that. It's also to create simulations so you can understand where the world is going. Because you have to ask yourself, what are the consequences of a billion users? What would your network topology look like? What would performance look like? What would your cost per transaction look like? And if this is a real system, you're telling governments and large companies and small businesses alike to build their companies on top of this system and trust this system, they have to have assurances that the system is long lived. Nobody would use the internet if we kept changing everything and TCP IP was changed every week and all your hardware was broken and you have to go buy a router every two months. No one would use it, right? The fact that the protocol has been around for a very long time, it's very stable. Everybody agrees to follow a certain set of rules is what the internet is so powerful. It's analogously, it's what's required for social operating systems. You need stability. Right. And, and that makes sense. And um, Yeah, I mean, if I were to build on top of that, like uh, when we speak about blockchains and like how things cannot be reversed, 
like at least uh, practically. And then we heard about cases such as the Ethereum classic split. I guess that was a time when a lot of us like lost faith in the Ethereum protocol and like if people are going to reverse transactions and like what is the point of building a blockchain at all? Where do you like uh, sit in that particular conversation and like what would Cardano do in such a, in such a situation? That's a good question. So I think you have to have a more nuanced approach. The problem with Ethereum, and I was d deeply involved in that conversation because I supported Ethereum Classic over Ethereum. Oh, was it, nice. I, I was there for over two years. I even built a, a node for Ethereum Classic. Um, the problem with Ethereum was that when we started Ethereum, it was really two projects in one. So there was this world computer idea, and then there was this code is law, better Bitcoin idea. And so the community originally agreed and got along but they're only going to get along until a stress event occurs and then it splits them and so the DAO hack was the perfect storm for that event because if people just got into their camps the code is law people say oh we've been through this before Mount Gox got hacked the, even the core developers lost millions of dollars just ride the storm out deal with it it is what it is you know we'll move on from this but then the world computer people are saying, hey, hang on a second here. Everything's mutable. Things are going to change. We're going to do tons of hard forks. And this is just a growing pain of the system. The original intent was for the contract to behave this way. So just fix it and uh, you know, move on. And of course, the code is law. People are saying, you're, by doing this, forever breaking the fidelity of the entire system. You're right. forever damaging integrity of the system. So don't do it. Just live with the mistake. The world computer people are saying, well, we're not perfect. and We made a lot of mistakes. And if we can't fix this mistake, that you're basically telling me I have to live with how smart we were in 2015 forever for the rest of my life. That's not fair. So they were both right, but there was no investment prospectus. There was no like uh, you know a very explicit manifesto or something like that that allowed us to make that decision. So what ended up happening is the ecosystem split. Now with Cardano, Cardano is much more abstract financial infrastructure. It's much more malleable. It's built for governance by design. So everything can be changed if there's enough of a, a mandate to change it. And that's the point of having blockchain-based governance is that there's a clear way to change parameters in the system from how decentralized the system is, the K parameter for stake pools, to the block size, to transaction fees, to changes in monetary policy, uh, and so forth. So when you have those tools available, then you can use those tools to deal with existential issues. Like let's say there was some critical security flaw discovered with our protocol or critical issue discovered with the signature scheme or something like that. It needed to be changed. On-chain governance gives you the ability then to have that conversation and say, what are we gonna do? And then create a democratic mandate to say, this is the new chain and this is the way we're going to go. Now, the very fact that you have these tools already creates a situation where you're going to have far less dissent and forks because people even if they lose feel like they've had a voice they've been listened to they've been acknowledged they've had a chance to make the argument and there's a notion of legitimacy that comes with that so you know in some cases this works very well uh, you know usually in the although with the existing incumbent it seems that we're getting dangerously close to that uh, but, uh, but historically, you know, that's a system of consensus that's been very strong and other systems, it doesn't work well at all. Like, you know, every time a new president gets elected in other countries, uh, sometimes like there's a coup or like the other president won't leave office or, you know, something like that. 
So these systems are really hard to build in practice. Uh, but the point of Cardano is to actually take that bull by the horns and directly try to come up with solutions for that. And then it's just let the people decide. And everybody makes their cases of where we should go, what we should do. And if we do have a failure, that in itself is a learning moment. It's a teachable moment. It's, it's something that we can move with. But there's a community expectation from the beginning that there's that kind of malleability inside the ledger. What you could not do is put this type of system into Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin has a social contract that's already established saying it will never have that type of system. Right. It's never going to have it's never going to change its monetary policy and so forth. So even if it's a huge upgrade in long term, it'll help the sustainability of the system and make Bitcoin much more competitive and viable. It's run its course in that respect. It's, it's a constitution. You can't change it. And, uh, you know, you'll have to hard fork and have, you know, uh, enough hash rate to overcome it. But even then, there'll be people mining the minority chain and keeping the original. Uh, so it's... Um, so it's difficult, but I don't think Cardano is going to run into the same problem that Ethereum ran into because Ethereum was never clear from the beginning. And there were two clear camps that had very strong differences of opinion. Inevitably, they were going to break up. With Cardano, we've from the very beginning said governance is subject to change. Parameters are subject to change. Mistakes will be recalled. But, you know, this bleeds into everything. Like, for example, eventually things within our chain will become economic citizens. We have to figure out how to do that. It's one of the great challenges post-2020. But what I mean by this is, well, let's say you issue your own cryptocurrency and it's like the pet rock. It's super popular for a little bit, then it completely dies out and no one cares about it. Should we then have to keep your transaction history, your token, the transactability of that token in 2125, over a hundred years from now? It's senseless, right? Why should you know, the person who's, who's gone still have influence over a global system and every single person has to bear that cost after he paid a one-time fee at a one price point. So you say, well, maybe we should have the ability to prune things or retire things or so forth or treat these things as economic agents where we can, uh, where we can uh, basically say, all right, well, if you want to keep them around, you have to keep paying to have them around or something like that. Well, then how do you have that conversation? You need some notion of governance. So you propose a baseline and you're going to get it wrong with the baseline because reality is reality. And they have to change it, change it, change it, tune it, tune it. And you learn as you go along and things get more adaptive, especially as technology changes. So this is the kind of design space that we're looking at for Cardano because it's a grown-up project. You know, you want to keep your principles. You want to keep your, uh, your, your core lessons we've learned from Bitcoin. And we've certainly done that. We are blockchain. We are auditable, timestamp, immutable in that respect. Uh, and you want to create a system where it's as decentralized as possible, but you also want to create a system where you're going to have billions of users. And if you're going to have billions of users, well, there's a lot of stuff going on. And uh, you know, cer certain things get pruned out. Certain things have to change. You have to reach consensus with billions of people who disagree with you, speak different languages, from you, have different political goals, different lifestyles, and so forth. Uh, so uh, so it's, a, it's a much harder challenge from one perspective, but it's also a much more exciting project to work on than Bitcoin. Because the best you can do with Bitcoin is just like, well, let's make it a little faster. You know, or let's put an overlay protocol like Lightning or something, or let's change the crypto out and go from like ECDS to SchnorSigs or something like that. And you spent five years arguing about it, you write some code and huzzah. But at the end of the day, what have you done? It's like you've enabled me to push a Bitcoin to you a little bit faster. Great. Right. But if we solve problems with Cardano, we're actually grabbing at the heart of the core of everything, governance. And we're creating basically a social operating system for the entire world that will be useful for billions of people and solve tons of problems and have stability and predictability and security built into its, its core. 
So uh, that's how we're approaching it. Just uh, blockchain-based governance for these types of parameters. So that necessarily means a voting system. It necessarily means good ways of communicating. It means that we're eventually going to have to self-host our own code to centralize GitHub access, have an improvement proposal process. There's a lot of practical uh, steps you can take. The good news is we're not in this alone. We have everything from spiral dynamics to complexity theory to Tezos to Dash. There's tons of frameworks and ideas, the academic organizations and the cryptocurrencies that are chasing the same overall goal. So the key is, as I mentioned, the very first question you asked, be a good listener. You know, uh, look at where the world is and then move on from there. Got it, got it. That makes sense. And like uh, on the topic of like being a good listener, like if we go out to Google and like search for your blockchain, like we see a couple of like trends flashing up. One of them is that your comparison to the Ethereum blockchain and the other one is like headlines which keep on flashing. Aid up cryptocurrency prices have risen by so and so percent or like maybe they have fallen by so and so percent. What is it about the Cardano protocol that you think that the crypto media keeps on missing? What is that secret sauce that you think that maybe this is something that the crypto media, uh, such as like Hakanun itself and like maybe some of the others as well, which we keep on like missing time after time, something that you guys have been screaming at the top of your lungs, on your website, on your like research papers. But what is it that like we have missed? Well, it is a two-way relationship. And you know, one side is the media doesn't have the right incentives or thought process to be particularly effective for good journalism. True. <laughs> um, you know, for example, this whole Trump impeachment thing, uh, you know, it's, it's something you always come back to. So, you know, love Trump, hate Trump, who cares? At the end of the day, we have a broken system. Right. We have a Senate and Congress that has a 90 plus percent disapproval rating, yet we have almost no turnover. Uh, because of gerrymandering and a litany of other issues. Right. You know, we have a political system where power tends to centralize, and I have no real voice here sitting in the state of Colorado for what actually happens with my federal government. Mm -hmm. uh, and every year we just see less and less democracy, less and less control. So you can hate the person in the White House and want to remove them, but it's not really going to change materially anything. A great example would be when Obama took over. He had a super control over everything. He had 60 senators, a supermajority in the Congress. How many people in Wall Street went to jail? I mean, this is the guy you would expect to do that. Didn't happen. So it tells you how powerful this system actually is at the end of the day. Uh, so, you know, if the media was really doing its job, it would not be running articles about how bad Trump is or the impeachment process and other things. It'd be an afterthought. It'd be running articles about why aren't we rewriting the Constitution? Why aren't we putting in term limits? Why, why do we have $23 trillion in national debt? Why do we have an empire and a thousand military bases all around the world? And why are we killing all these people around the world? These like legitimate real things to talk about. Well, the incentives aren't well aligned for the media to do that. So right. it's unrealistic to say that if they can't do this at the grand scale, at the highest levels with multi-billion dollar companies, how can the cryptocurrency media behave any differently? What they're doing is yellow journalism. They're focusing on narratives. And the narratives are either you're going to get rich or going to get poor. This is a good investment. Or the narrative is we're all competing with each other. I, I remember reading an article that came out. I worked with a journalist for a few days. I even had her fly out to Bulgaria for our second anniversary. And I spent hours literally talking about the vision of Cardano and what we want to do for the world, things we've done in Ethiopia and Georgia, 
and the point of a social operating system, why this change is being forced on everybody. I mentioned specific examples of like coffee farmers who live on less than a hectare of land in Ethiopia who are being told by Starbucks or other big vendors that they now have to record things and prove fair trade and carbon reduction and so forth, or else they just can't sell their product. This is a real life for billions of people around the world. And the story that she ended up writing was Cardano is a project that is Charles's revenge on Ethereum. <laughs> you know, and so, so I said, wow, that's, uh, that's really shitty. You know, I, and in fact, the, the title of the article is A Man in Hell, and she took a, a picture of the uh, painting in my office, and, and like and the whole project was broken down to like a personal quest to get revenge for, against Ethereum. And this was after hours and hours and hours and hours, and actually bringing her to Bulgaria and showing her the people and our community members and our ambassadors, because that wasn't a sexy story of this system is for social good. It's going to take many years. It's very hard. There's a lot of things that need to be done. It's moving like a turtle. But if we pull it off, we'll change the world. It's a much sexier story of there's this drama, Rocky versus Apollo Creed, you know, this, this chain versus this chain, who will win? Because, you know, it's shallow. It's easy to form an opinion. It's polarizing and it's bereft of depth. So you don't, you don't really have to think too hard about it. So that's one direction. The other direction is we, scientists are very notorious for thinking that their ideas are self-evident. And this is a big cognitive trap. And you can't get stuck in that. You just think, well, I'm doing all this work. I wrote all these papers. Look how magical these papers are. I mean, you know, like, oh, here we go. Why, why can't anybody read about generalized Skolomoller Lex theorem for a fine varieties? There you go. That's a great paper. Huzzah. <laughs> it's obvious that I solved the problem. But no, the reality is that just because you and your head have thought something really hard and, and taken the time to put it down on paper doesn't mean that other people are going to put that same investment in. So like Orboros is a great example. We've been working on it since 2015. We've written dozens of papers around Ouroboros or related to Ouroboros. We firmly believe, okay, we've solved the proof of stake problem. There's a very large group of people inside the cryptocurrency space that either believe proof of stake is a Ponzi scheme, it's perpetual motion, it doesn't work, or that our particular flavor of proof of stake has not satisfied some problem. Maybe nothing at stake or a long range attack or whatever. So what am I going to do? Just call them all dummies and like you know, just read the papers, understand my complex math? No, the burden's on me to be a better communicator. The burden's on me to actually write better explanations, to visualize things, to show people why our protocols work, demonstrate why those protocols work. So, you know, on one hand, I think the media system in general is broken. They focused on shallow viral stories, narratives, and controversies, and that's because the financial incentives are aligned that way. On the other hand, I think that we haven't done the best of job communicating some of the advancements we have because we've been talking to the wrong audience. You know, right now we, we talk a lot to engineers and scientists and we have a common link with Franco mathematics with those people, but that's not the mainstream. That's not everyday people. And so what we need to do is, and this is a big priority in 2020 is, is work very hard at changing the way we communicate, changing the depth at which we communicate and uh, how we communicate so we can better reach these audiences. No, makes sense. And like, yeah, I guess like you missed out on this one thing that journalists like love to do and that is called keyword stuffing. So yes, I mean, you are doing a really fantastic uh, work for these people in like Ethiopia and I guess also in Mongolia, right? Yeah, we've, we've been, we're probably going to teach a class in Mongolia next year. And, um, you know, we've, we've done some things. Uh, we're doing a credential verification system in Georgia. We're doing a feasibility study in Ethiopia. We also talk 
course in Ethiopia where we trained 23 girls uh, to become programmers. So it was an all-female class in Ethiopia, which is like, for, if you look at engineers in Ethiopia, it's like nine men for every one woman. Uh, we wow. were able to train 23. It was an amazing experience. And we were so proud to be participating in that. And it makes sense. So like, if you think of from the point of view of a journalist, like they see that people are searching for Ethereum more than they are searching for Mongolia. So right. naturally it becomes a story for him in that sense. And like, that's why I like wanted to like know from you, what is it about like, what you guys do at Cardano that you guys want to focus on and what like the world has like completely missed out. Right. Well, the energy economy is also a big issue. So, you know, people have finite time and the problem with globalization and the internet is it's robbed us of our attention span. You know, it, not too long ago, people lived in one small town and, you know, they, they had regimented schedules and long, large amounts of downtime and limited communication. So people could focus really focused you know they they didn't know what how, how big of an economy so it's like everybody kind of was in a position where they had the luxury of really giving you their time and their attention now we live in an era where if it you can't explain in less than 30 seconds what you're doing what's going on people get bored and they lose attention and they move on this is profoundly damaging for everything from academia, uh, textbooks are having to be rewritten to how the internet works, to how advertisement is working, uh, to how websites are designed and so forth. I mean, I, I, just to get people to come to my webpage, I, I broke down to creating games on the front page and visualizations on the front page. Yeah. And actually, people remember our website. If you go to iohk.io, you actually see the things we put on. Like we have these beautiful 3DS animations and people are like, wow, that's really cool. They don't actually know what our company does but they actually do share our website with people. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. But this new attention economy, the, sh the shallows, is creating a lot of social issues. So journalism is a reflection of that, because the journalist says, look, I can take the time to talk about this amazing thing going on in Ethiopia, or let's say Mongolia with cashmere, where you know, right now they don't have a lot of market access and they're selling most of their cashmere to China. They're one of the world's largest producers. And they're being paid one or two pennies for every dollar China sends it for. So one or two percent of the actual value of the transaction. And then you come with a system, make it sustainable, help these poor farmers and really improve this local economy. I could explain this, but to explain it would require a long form article with lots of words, lots of time, lots of research. And you know what? Very few people are actually going to read that. You know, they would much rather want the 30 second, one minute, two minute article that is shallow, that's super easy to understand, and it allows a person to form an opinion. Charles good, Charles bad, Cardano good, Cardano bad, ADA price going up, ADA price going down, uh, this product will win against this product, et cetera, et cetera. Easier to write that article, uh, you're gonna get a, a lot more clicks, and if your money is dependent on how many clicks and how much volume you get, and how many articles you produce, the model's broken. It's only gonna produce short form, viral, very aggressive, controversial articles. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So I guess journalism like needs to like maybe improve, like maybe there needs to be a, like there should be a call for journalism. Like, but, but there uh, is, but there is like, look at Joe Rogan experience or the intellectual dark web where people just assume just because this is the consumption model that we're dealing with, that that's it. But then suddenly this dude shows up and he creates three, four hour podcasts with deep, intricate conversations with Alex Jones and Jordan Peterson and, you know, uh, Sean Carroll. He's like, 
a huge diversity of people from scientists to MMA fighters. It's pretty, it's pretty wild. And it's the single most popular podcast in the world. And uh, it's got regularly tens of millions of listeners and viewers. Uh, and it's, and what's really amazing about it is despite its popularity, it's almost never mentioned in the mainstream media. It blows my mind. And when they do mention Joe Rogan, they say an entertainer, like, like he's just like a, a comedian or something like that. And meanwhile, he has more media distribution than Fox News does for a lot of the shows or CNN does for a lot of the shows. So there is definitely an appetite for it. This is a great business opportunity for our industry in particular. Because when I say social operating system, I'm not just talking about stocks and bonds. You can talk about any activity where there's an exchange of value. The journalist is producing information for you, the consumer, and you, the consumer, are rewarding that journalist in some way, either with social status or money, right? right? So what happens if we create a system where we can fire all the media companies, get rid of the news corps and the Disneys and these others, and just have independent journalists? And then you can create attention markets, and then there's going to be this nice long-tail distribution where you'll still have this viral stuff, but then they'll have all these other people who make a great living actually producing content that's long form and in depth for specific communities and so forth, who have an incentive to share that information. So, uh, you know, as with all problems, you don't just complain about it. You always ask yourself, is there a solution? Historically, why did it happen? What are the first principles we can apply to solve that particular problem? And then also, you know, what has been built in our industry? The basic attention token with Brave, you have Steam, you have a litany of attempts where people are trying to create things and we pull it off, suddenly you can make your whole living just doing podcasts. And you can live very well, like Joe Rogan does, for example. Right, right. I guess, yeah, I mean, these are connotations that like can always go on. Like yellow journalism is a problem. But yeah, uh, we'll stick to Cardano on this one. So if we try to delve deeper into like Cardano, a word that keeps on popping up is that it is provably secure. It's provably secure. We tend to accept that. How about we talk about how is it provably random? Like you guys don't talk about how do you like make sure, like how random is your randomness is like what I want to know. Well, there's, there's different approaches to generating random numbers. And this is a topic that cryptographers study in detail. And it's actually a solved problem. It's not like we have to just invent something new. It's usually coming down to either interaction or speed and bloat. So the easiest way of doing it in a distributed system is using what's called a multi-party computation protocol. So Schoenmaker, uh, Crypto99, wrote a paper on this using an MPC protocol. The problem with these protocols is they tend not to scale very well, and they also require interaction. So right. you have to, people have to get together, they, they do some stuff, they produce something, and then that something actually is a seed of randomness. And as long as at least one of the members in that circuit, so however large it is, is honest, uh, and those commitments are revealed, then your randomness is great. So that was the first or porous random number generation. It's very pure, very cryptographically elegant. And we wrote a protocol called Scrape. We actually have a paper specifically on this topic uh, that basically uh, allows you to, uh, that, that, that I'll sped it up a bit, but that was the first generation. But the problem is we wanna remove interaction. We also wanted to have adaptive security uh, for the system, meaning that people don't know who won ahead of time. They only know after the fact and you can prove that. So both Algorand and, uh, and uh, Cardano, we started pursuing VRFs. Uh, verifiable right. random functions. And there's a whole science for VRFs. They've been around for, I think, since the 1980s or 1990s. And as again, you just, you know, do some things yourself and there's some magic math that happens and boom, you're able to create some randomness and there's some mathematical bounds of the quality of that randomness. So it deteriorates a little bit from the pure quality that you get from an MPC protocol. That's almost like getting it from galactic static or something like that. 
but you get it within a round that you can't really determine that from true randomness. And uh, that's the gold standard. But again, there's a lot of different ways that you can generate randomness. You can do it with PDFs, you can do it with trusted cryptographic beacons and so forth. And a lot of the sharding solutions are basically saying we're gonna have a beacon chain where that's gonna produce yeah. some randomness and it's through serialization. And then we have all these other chains that you know, basically use that as the source of truth. So there's just a simple problem there. So we use a VRF. Uh, if you're really curious about how those details work, uh, there's some videos on YouTube that Sebastian from Mergo created explaining that. It's also in the Orbor's Prails paper, and Algorand also uses a similar technique. So multiple people are converging to that. Um, there are other approaches you can use. Uh, Definity has some ideas. You know, use may see some things with VDFs, verifiable delay functions to, to create some things. But generally speaking, it's just you commit to something, you have some mathematical structure, and then it's, you reveal it after the fact, and then you use that combined with some other shared state from the past, and then these things together allow you to prevent what's called a grinding attack. That's the thing you worry the most about. So the, the first proof-of-stake protocols, like NXT, for example, they suffered from that attack, where if you didn't like the outcome from what you were producing, you could just keep grinding and grinding and grinding until you could bias so you could have a higher chance of winning, because you could bias the system that way. So what we want to do is have closure or finality in the system prior to the next commitment of randomness being known. So you can't reverse that randomness to bias it towards you having a greater chance of winning and so forth. Um, there's also a question of, is this cryptographic beacon good enough that our network has to be used as a trusted feed for uh, gambling or you know, other activities that require random number generation? And that's still an open question that we have. It probably is, but we'd have to think carefully about that. Um, yeah, it's a great topic, though. It's, uh, there's, uh, this is actually like one of the first things that cryptographers really started seriously thinking about in the 80s and 90s. And we started building distributed systems. We're like, well, how do we generate random numbers? We kind of need that. And uh, you know, they, they said, well, look, we'll create a C-Spring, a cryptographically secure pseudorandom number generator. And usually it was something like we'd have a seed. It's a secret. Somebody knows it. And that seeds a... Uh, basically a, uh, a, a stream cipher or something, and it just generates all this noise, and then you just XOR with it, and then boom, you have true randomness. And it's like something like that. But then the problem is one party knows how to regenerate that entire state, so it's not random for that one party, but external parties uh, do know that, don't know that, so it's random for them. And then people said, well, can we go from a trusted party to a group of people? I said, oh, okay, let's play a game with these group of people. So that's what you know, multi-party computation was about. And then, so they'll play a game together, and then as long as no one, at least one person is honest in this game, well, then everything is okay. And that was like 90s crypto. And then we said, well, we're in cryptocurrency land. We don't want to be interactive, and we don't know people, and we want to be really fast. And this is where VRFs and VDFs and these other things are coming from, too, uh, to produce these things. Uh, and there's a great corpus of literature on, you know, approaches and so forth. Uh, it's the area we actually worry the least about because it's, because it's, it's already kind of a, a settled deal. It's just picking how dirty can the randomness be, how fast can it be, and also how many people are participating and what are the commitment potentials. So another problem with random number generation is that a lot of these protocols tend to be very heavy. So what that means is you have to generate a lot of data and you have to store that on the chain. Like the first version of Ouroboros suffered from this problem. The, uh, the multi-party computation protocol we used required commitments, and if they were open, we could optimize it, but if people didn't open their commitments, so share the, the pre-images of the hashes they were committing to, uh, then that data would forever be on the Ouroboros blockchain. And if you had a large set of people, like thousands of people, you'd end up having 
hundreds of megabytes every five days of, of data for uh, basically uh, uh, you know randomness, and that's just that's not sustainable. You can't you can't do that. So we that's why we switched to the VRF idea. It's uh, it's substantially more compressed and scalable. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. And on the topic of like consensus protocols, so like I was going through uh, how Cardano does it. Like, would it be okay to call it a middle ground between delegated proof of stake and proof of elapsed time? Well, you know, so whenever you create a proof of stake system, you always will end up having some notion of delegation in that system. So we started as a pure proof of stake system. So no delegation. And we just figured out, you know, range of time slots, fill the slots. Great. But then the problem is the vast majority of your users either are unwilling, unable, or don't have the right incentives to actually create the infrastructure to show up 24-7 always for their slots. So you can either say, well, coalition of the willing, they don't show up, someone else does, who knows, and they can poach the reward. Uh, or you can say, well, just give them the ability to hand their right to somebody else. And this is a delegation function. Right. So then you have to think about the consequences of delegation. So what and Larimer did is he, he took a 1980 and just said, hey, I'm just going to create a fixed quorum that never changes, and people just vote on who's in it, and use stake as voting. Great. And so it was bit shares, it was 101, I guess because he's a fan of the Dalmatians movie, and with uh, EOS it was 21, so maybe he's a blackjack fan or who knows. Uh, but it's just like arbitrary things pulled out of a hat, and that's an unchanging quorum until people are voted out. Right. With Orboros, what we did is we said, look, what we're going to do is say, let's just create stake, this concept of a stake pool, allow a person to register that on the chain, and anybody can do it. It's an open system in that respect. And then basically, let's create some economic parameters so that the system tends to maximize, uh, optimize around a particular parameter. And we call that K. So K can be set at 100 pools or 1,000 pools. And the goal is to make K larger over time. So you end up getting more and more decentralized. And then you can have the best of both worlds where you say, hey, hang on a second here. Uh, we have all these people who are making a business commitment to being around 24-7, provide relay nodes, Oracle services, run lightning channels, whatever. They can provide infrastructure in addition to consensus. And they're somewhat trusted because they have stake delegated to them, pledged and so forth. So you can create economic consequences if they don't behave well. But on the other hand, the system is always getting more decentralized and the system is truly a pure proof of stake. So you're never forced to delegate your stake and you can just self-delegate it to, your, to yourself, to your own private pool, and then basically uh, you know, make blocks uh, on your own. So you kind of get the best of both worlds of a pure proof-of-stake system compared to a delegated system. And then you, you also, by having those, those state pools, gain the additional advantage of known infrastructure that can provide services to the entire ecosystem. So you know, there are a lot of people who have been chasing this, and we're not different in that respect. The, the big difference between us and our competitors is we did it in a very rigorous way. So we started from the ledger design that we built a series of protocols and every time we designed them, we added better properties. So we started in a synchronous model, then we went to a semi-synchronous model, which means that people don't actually have to show up on time. We have a little bit of tolerance to network delays and things like that. Then we developed properties like bootstrapping from Genesis, so you don't need a checkpoint. You can start from the Genesis block and bootstrap from that. So then we've said, hey, well, let's get rid of NTP. We want to create our own clock and send the networks. That's where Chronos 
So we kind of built this whole family of protocols walking up the ladder. And the composite of all these things give us relatively equivalent security properties to proof of work. But then we get all the benefits of a delegated system and you know, having people stick around and real economic actors and so forth. And, you know, now we're testing it. The incentivized test net launched this week on Monday. Um, right. And, you know, we have 300 in the catalog. Take a few weeks for that network to fully stabilize. And then as it runs, we gain more and more data. We can tune a lot of parameters as we get close to the launch of the mainnet. Definitely. And like you have a best wishes there. And like I saw that uh, whiteboard video which you did, like it has over 400,000 views. So I assume that at least 400,000 people understand it. Like I wasn't one of them. So when you talk about like, uh, look at the, like we would look at the token architecture and then we would divide the world into epochs. I understand that part, but when you get into, you can run simultaneous epochs, like because you have scalability. And that was the point where I was like, who do I ask? And like now, and like, now I have you, can you help me out there? Like what does running simultaneous epochs like mean in terms of Cardano scalability? Yeah, that was a ledger sharding idea that we have, but you know, so epochs are ordered. So you have zero, one, two, three, but logically the system doesn't actually care if an epoch occurs in or one order or the other. We care as humans. So zero, one, two, three. So what if you just run them in parallel? So instead of electing one committee, you elect multiple committees, and then you assign those committees to each of those epics. So epic zero has a committee, epic one has a committee, and then you just find a way to kind of spray transactions. So if you look at transaction, you do something to it, say, oh, this one is goes bucket one. Oh, this one goes in bucket two, this one goes in bucket three, and so forth. So this is generally how you do ledger sharding. There's some notion of you have a global pool of work, you serialize it in a particular way, and there's a way to partition it. And the partitions are pairwise disjoint, meaning that you're only in one of those partitions. You're only in one of those buckets. And then you have a question of who controls each of those buckets. Well, you can elect the committees in parallel instead of electing them sequentially. Mm -hmm. So that's one way of doing it. So that was a 2017 notion, and we actually have a way of doing that we wrote a paper called parallel chains and it was a whole approach for 2020 we're taking a slightly something long term we can it's complementary so the approach we're launching in 2020 to scale will work with the ledger sharding idea but it's significantly easier to deploy and we'll get a, a bigger bang for a buck it's involving asynchronous stage house so uh so we'll, we'll publish a paper probably in february uh that has all those details we already have the protocol designed but we're doing simulations right now mm-hmm Got it. So like, and like in that video, you also talk about data partitioning, like pruning and partitioning. So right. like, it's pretty simple with the Bitcoin blockchain that everybody like hosts the blockchain, right? Like everybody who is a miner has the entire blockchain. Under right. Cardano, you talk about like you have data partition. So I only have a segment of it. You have a segment of it. And like, let's say Mr. Satoshi Nakamoto has a segment of it. And now he has gone offline or like maybe he is being impersonated by someone like without naming like anybody from the real world so how do you like verify that that person is offline but still like the chain does not break like you have uh, that time stamps from genesis but how that works out yeah so so inclusive accountability is what the concept you're looking at so everybody has the capability of checking each other's work right. and this is closely the other concept of a of um, availability. So, uh, so the magic of blockchains is that they're just basically systems that 
allow you to verify truth when you have a block of truth. So right. it can, you know, like witnesses for transactions, it can be uh, hash representations of, of large sets of data, like what Factum is doing historically. So there's, there's a lot of ways you can look at it, but basically the concept is Bob has some blob of truthiness. And then what the blockchain's done is timestamp that, recorded some representation of it. And then Bob is trying to prove to you that what he has is real. So let's say, uh, you know, an example, Bob is a corporation and the auditor has read the books and audited the books and agrees to them. So what the auditor is going to do is hash that and sign it, put that signed hash on the blockchain. So then when Bob shows up and says, here's my audited books, you can hash it, check the signature, and then verify that that hash has been changed. Mm -hmm. so from that timestamp, that's when the auditor's understanding was. It's a very simplistic use case, but you, know, you can scale that to pretty much any social use case. So the availability problem is huge in distributed systems. The minute that you go from a replicated system, meaning everybody has the same view of reality, to a sharded system, then all of a sudden certain actors may not have the ability to reconstruct the network. So what you can do is you can cheat a little bit. So you take your data set X and you apply erasure coding to it, and you get much larger. So you go X times alpha. And then you chop it up into slices. You don't actually need uh, equal slices to put the whole chain back together. Only a subset of slices are required to, uh, to, to do this. Uh, so that's one primitive technique from the 1980s and 1990s, erasure codes and and ideas to, to reconstruct things. And so you get some availability tolerance then. So even if Bob goes offline, the composition of Carl and Bill and Jim and Alex can actually reconstruct Bob's piece. So that's the first thing that you do. Then the second thing is you have to realize that these are economic agents, meaning that Bob's blob of data costs Bob money to maintain. So the system either has to compensate for that or expect long-term that Bob will eventually lose that data. If anything, just because he upgrades his computer and because he's not rewarded for transferring the, the information from his old computer to the new computer, he just leaves it on the old hard drive or something like that. It can be non-malicious. It can just be infrastructure dies and without a financial incentive, there's no incentive to reoccur that. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, what is our solution to this? Well, no one in the industry actually has developed an elegant solution. There's been a lot of partial ideas like uh, permacoin and filecoin and you know, things that have come around where people are trying to construct both a decentralized file system as well as an incentive for keeping data around. Right. Now, the good news is that you can approach this problem in a three-phased way. One is treat the data on chain as scarce as possible. So use proofs and compressed representation things, so recursive snarks, hashes, other things to basically eliminate a lot of the bloat on the chain. And that's, that's something you can always do, and it's its own research thread. And there's great ideas like Halo and other things to, to solve that. The second dimension is to say, okay, treat things like economic agents, economic objects. So if they're going to stick around long term, pay people for that, create incentive schemes for that. Okay, and then the third thing is to do what MadeSafe and, and Storage and Filecoin and all these other guys are trying to do, is to create a basically decentralized archive infrastructure. So the main chain will not carry it, but there will be archive nodes, certain nodes that do have the capacity to carry these things and are properly incentivized. And then if your system is truly sustainable, it actually can pay that system to hold on to the data for you. So you get high availability then. Uh, and you know, this will end up mirroring a lot of the things that you see with conventional web infrastructure. Right. Like Amazon, for example, has glacier storage. So all the time there's a lot of people who 
that you need to store some things around, but they're very infrequently accessed. So for example, if you're a large corporation, you have regulatory requirements for archiving certain amounts of data, but unless the regulator comes and requests it, you never look at it. So that can end up being petabytes of information. So you can go and just pay to store all of that. And then when you want to access it, it's very high latency. It takes quite a bit of time to unfreeze it, get it out, and you're not going to get a nice quality of service. On the other hand, you have super frequently accessed data, like the mempool, for example. It's literally lives in memory because you, you, know, you need something like that. And so you know, building those types of data hierarchies can be mirrored into a distributed system. And then you know, the amount of availability is based upon the criticality of the information. If we're talking about my corporation's logs, I'm not only going to uh, make sure there's replicated storage of that, I'm also gonna probably privately keep that information. So the, the last concept in availability is regeneratability. So if you lose it, is there a way that if you cared to hold on to it, that you can prove to the network that's real and regenerate it, repopulate it within inside the system? And a lot of these blockchain-based systems have that property because they have the records there and those will always be there. No one's ever going to prune those hashes out and so forth. And that could be for an arbitrarily large amount of data. This is super important when we're talking about compliance on chain. So right. for example, the travel rule. So very soon we're going to start seeing data identity and embedding and metadata embedding into transactions for withdrawals. Like for example, what will end up happening is an exchange will start saying, unless you sign your address that you're withdrawing to with a registered decentralized identifier, we're not gonna allow you to withdraw your, your stuff. So suddenly now you're not just talking about a naked address, you're talking about an address with identity connected to it. Right. And then when you're doing metadata, you may actually have a compliance hash, which proves origin of funds or other things inside the transaction and so forth. So you still get a lot of privacy because you can encrypt these things and they're hashes so they're not reversible. But then suddenly there's some private party that has more knowledge about that transaction. And that can prove properties of that transaction to a regulator and so forth. This is going to be one of the cool challenges in the story in 2020. Anyway, I could talk forever, but unfortunately, I have a hard stop at 10, 15, and 19. So. All right, then I'd like, uh, I just have one more question to go like, and if you can make a time. All right, what's the question real quickly? 30 seconds. Right. So it's like you guys are going to have functional smart contracts, and what is your best case scenario from there? Like, are you like looking to have an ERC token like hollow ICO boom? Or like, what do you like guys want to be your best case scenario? Well, the best case scenario is that we can solve useful applications. Uh, you know, so very briefly, uh, the model for smart contracts is broken where people were sold this idea that your entire application lives on the blockchain. The reality is it doesn't. Uh, it's a service-oriented architecture. So the, you're going to have your own servers, you have clients, you have a server-client model, but there's certain parts of your business logic in your application that, that are too trusted. So you take them out, you write smart contracts to run those things. It can be managing a token. It can be managing random number generation. It can be player matching, whatever the heck it is, but you don't want to trust a centralized server for these types of things, account creation, account management. So the point of Plutus and what we've done with our smart contract model is it's aware of both on-chain and off-chain logic. And it's very easy for your off-chain code to talk to your on-chain code. And you can write your off-chain code in logic you want, Java, C++, JavaScript, these types of things, and preserve your old application model. So you're still deploying the node, you're still deploying the JVM, whatever have you. But then all of a sudden the on-chain code is now bespoke built to handle certain things, either interoperability or the management of assets, information, or identity. 
So that logic that's mission critical for things that, are, are, that you really don't want to trust to a centralized server, you now have good languages to manage all that. Uh, and that can be everything from issuing your own currency to a loyalty point system, to a voting system, whatever have you. And then you get a, assurances that that's decentralized infrastructure and it's censorship that resistant users know that that's always gonna be there. Uh, but then at the same time, you can build your business and still have some degree of centralization behind your application architecture. So imagine if like, just as a thought experiment, three of big MMOs get together. Like let's say EVE Online gets together with World of Warcraft, gets together with, you know, pick Lord of the Rings Online, I don't know, pick your favorite MMOs. And let's say they decide that they're gonna create a common in-game currency, a universal token between these three games. Well, you don't wanna really trust one company to manage all of that, so they issue the currency on a blockchain. So their off-chain code would be the game clients, but then suddenly they're using as a service the Cardano blockchain as an example, to basically manage that currency. And then you get a guarantee as a user that you will always be able to transfer your in-game currency from let's say World of Warcraft to Eve or to you know, Lord of the Rings. So that's an example of a bridging play. And then you can extrapolate that for medical record systems. You can extrapolate that for supply chain systems. You can extrapolate that for pretty much anything where you're involving a coalition of actors who don't necessarily trust each other, but their customers need them to work together for a common benefit. Anyway, uh, I'd love to Got stay it. in chat. I got to get definitely. going. Yeah, definitely. And like, I don't want to be the one writing the headline. Charles Hoskinson is always late for his meetings. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, well, thanks both. Thanks, Utsa, for joining the, the call. And thanks for making time, Charles. Um, obviously, uh, we'll send around the, the recording afterwards. You have everything to hand. And if you have any further questions. But thanks both for uh, quite a fascinating discussion. Right. When will this be out? And also, is, are we going to release the videos or is it just going to be a written article? We want to like do it with, with the video as well, but like I would send you the transcript before we like start to, before we start to publish it. Okay. And wh when is this going to be out? Is it next week or is Christmas going to slow you guys down? Or? No, Christmas won't slow us down. Like I'm in India and like, I don't, not exactly a Christian. So yeah, it should be out like around New Year, like just before New Year. It should be. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Cheers. All right. Cheers, guys. Bye.